All right. Hey, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to The Exchange. Uh, my name is Josiah. I'm so glad you guys are here with us. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark, so do me a favor. Turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we'd love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. But we are in Mark chapter 9. And if you've been with us, we're really slowing down the pace. Uh, we're six and a half months-ish almost into this, and we're halfway through the book. And our, our desire is just simply to slow down and to look at the life and ministry of Jesus. Just who he is, what he claimed, what he said. And so if you are taking note, let me just kind of uh, catch up to speed. The first half of the Gospel of Mark is showing us who Jesus is. Mark is almost peeling off the layers of Jesus, saying, look, he can heal people. He can forgive people of sins. He can cast out demons. He's showing who he is. In this next half of the Gospel of Mark, we're looking at what he came to do. So it's not just to heal. That's a taste of, of something greater. It's not just to cast out demons. It's a taste of something greater. We're seeing what he actually came to do in his purpose. And his, his purpose was ultimately to die. His purpose was to save, uh, to save many, as, as he said. He gave his life for a ransom for many. And so we're going to look now more at the purpose of what he came to do. And I've just so been enjoying this book um, because I do want to just know Jesus. I think there's a lot of opinions and thoughts out there about Jesus. I think we like to make up Jesus in our own, own image. And Mark challenges, challenges us in our thoughts not to make Jesus up in our own image, but to find and discover the real biblical Jesus. And so let me just say this. This is actually written to skeptics. This is written to Roman doubters, Roman skeptics. So if you're a skeptic in here, Mark wrote this for you. He wrote this with you in mind. Uh, and actually, our passage today does deal with that. Our passage today does deal with doubt and skepticism and unbelief. And this is a passage I am so thankful for. And I've been able just to slow down this week and just read it and, and kind of hear the heart, I think, of, of the dad who approaches Jesus in this situation. But um, let me just kind of fill you in really quick, okay? So last week, we saw that Jesus was on this mount. He was on most likely Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet high. He brought Peter, James, and John, and we call this the Mount of Transfiguration. This is where Jesus really showed Peter, James, and John who he was. Like, his glory came out. And they see Jesus, like, and it says, I love how Mark says, he's like, no launderer could make his clothes that white. Like, their clothes are so white, right? Like, his glory was so unreal. And then Moses and Elijah appeared, and they're having this conversation with Jesus. And then Peter opens up his mouth. He's like, oh, we should build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then God the Father speaks and says, no, listen to my son. Listen to Jesus, right? This crazy, incredible moment. And so last week, we talked about just this taste of glory, a taste of glory. And we saw that one day, you and I will see Jesus in his glory. That one day you and I will be like him, 1 John 3, 2 says. That we too will have a glorified body. That we'll not live in this body forever. That we'll see Jesus and be like him. So we got a little taste of glory. Now here's where we're at today. Today we're going to see Jesus come off the mounts and into the valley and into chaos. We're going to see a chaotic crowd, a broken father, a demon-possessed child, and confused disciples, right? It's over. The honeymoon's over. This mountaintop experience is over. And Jesus comes into this mess. And we're going to see this, this father, he's just so brokenhearted, and he says these words, and this is really the title and the main thought today. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And honestly, that's the cry I think of all of us. It's like, I so believe, but help the part of me that does not believe. And I just want to talk about this. How can we have faith and doubt all at the same time? How can we be, how can we be faith-filled followers of Jesus? And yet there's a sense of doubt within all of us, I think, that still resides. And can those two things, like, compete? Do they compete against each other or do they work with each other? How does that work? So let's just read the story. It's Mark chapter 9, verse 14. 
We're going to read it and then pray and look more in depth. So Mark chapter 9, verse 14, it says, And when he came to the disciples, so Jesus comes down the mountain, meets the other nine, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them, with the disciples. Immediately when they saw Jesus, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And Jesus asked the, the scribes, and he says, What are you discussing with them? I almost love like the personal ownership. Like, what are you talking about with my disciples? What are you doing? Verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I, I brought you, I brought you, my son, who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered and said, Jesus, he said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to Jesus, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked his father, uh, how long has this been happening, Tim? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But, the father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. <laughs> but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, this kind can only, can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. <laughs> and this is what I want to do. I just want to pray for a second because I do believe in just so many different ways in life that for God to do a new work, for God to do a work in my life, for God to do a work in this church, that this kind, this, this work can only happen through prayer and fasting. And so I just want to pray for God to do a work. I wanted to actually take this literal and go, God, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's pray and ask you to, to cast things out of South Florida, to cast things out of our family's lives, to cast things out and experience you in a greater way. So let's just do that and take a moment and pray. Father, um, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus. We're so thankful when the disciples could not do something you can. Jesus, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts. I, I know I'm so like this, this father who just has belief but unbelief as well. And, and Lord, I thank you that you embrace the doubter. I thank you that you answer the doubter's cry. I thank you, God, that you're patient with the doubter. And so, Lord, I just ask for all of us, I know we all can have this mixture within us of faith and doubt. So, Jesus, just speak to us. Accomplish what it is you want to accomplish this morning. And just encourage us in the areas we need to be encouraged in. And Jesus, we just want to hear from you now in your wonderful name. Amen. I can remember the first time I was genuinely questioned about my faith and what I believed. And I can remember that feeling of, oh no, how do I communicate what I believe? I was actually like 15 years old. I was uh, in California, in Southern California. I was at this gym, 24-hour fitness. I lived there. They kind of raised me. I feel like I go back now. They're like, hey, I just grew up there from like 13 to 18, going there literally like eight hours a day uh, just to play basketball, <laughs> not work out. Don't worry. Uh, so I'm there playing basketball. And in the summertime, I was 15. I was, going to, I was going into my sophomore year of high school. 
And in the summertime, there's actually a lot of times there'll be NBA players that you've never heard of in that gym practicing. A lot of Clippers, and no one knows who the Clippers are. And I was better than a Clipper in high school. Like, not a good team. Uh, but there'd be some guys battling it out and, and guys that were in the ABA or lower leagues. But there's a guy named Sean Rooks who was in the NBA. I used to like him. Again, you don't know him. It's okay. This guy named Sean Rooks who was like 6'10", and a guy named Eric Chenoweth who's about 7'3". And I used to go into the gym. They, they closed off one half, and I'd be on the other half playing. And I would just sometimes just sit and watch these guys battle it out. And it's so cool. I was like 5'10", watching these like six foot nine, ten, seven foot three guys battle it out. And it was just so fun. I was watching this for a while. And I go to the, the water fountain, and I get a drink. And I'm wearing my jersey from high school. I went to Calvary Chapel High in Costa Mesa, and I'm wearing my Calvary Chapel jersey, and I'm getting a drink. And this guy, Eric Chenoweth, I remember so clearly, comes up to me. And he goes, oh, Calvary Chapel. He goes, what is that? Is that like your school or team? I'm like, yeah, it's my, it's my school uh, that I play for. He's like, awesome, Calvary, what kind of school is that? I'm like, uh, it's, a, it's a Christian school? I was like afraid to even, he's like, oh, Christian school, no way, that's awesome. He's like, I've actually been kind of exploring different faiths. Can you tell me more about Christianity? And I remember like he asked me this so, cle- like, so clearly, seven foot three, mind you, and this giant head is like in my face, like his head was unreal. It's like the size of my torso. And I'm like, yeah, I, I can tell you more. He's like, yeah, just start from the beginning. Uh, so I'm like... And I literally said, so in the beginning, God. <laughs> and I was like, created. And I started with Genesis 1-1. I didn't know, again, I'm 15. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. In the beginning, God, who's God? Like, define God. I, how do you describe God? My like, God's a creator, and he's father. And I was like, he's like, all right. So I was like struggling over my words. So I'm like, in the beginning, God, and he created everything good, and there's Adam and Eve, and they messed up, and sin came into the world. I was like, sin? What the heck is sin? I'm like, sin is bad. Sin is not good. And he's just asking these questions, and I'm literally panicking, like, oh my gosh, like, I don't even know what I'm trying to express this. And he's, as I'm talking about sin, he goes, whoa, whoa, he's like, let me just stop you. He goes, man, I'm just messing with you. He goes, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus as well. And he's like, I just wanted to know what you believed, and I want to know if you could express it. And he's like, no, dude, he's like, I get it. He's like, he's like, keep it going, you know, keep it up, man. Keep pursuing Jesus. So I was like, <laughs> and like, he's laughing, I'm like crying, like shaking. Again, the seven foot three giant, you can look him up, seven foot three giant just asking me these questions. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I remember from that point on, honestly, it stirred a lot within me. When that conversation was over, I wanted to know what did I, what did I believe and why did I believe it? And honestly, that question, the questions he was asking and stopping and pausing and stopping and pausing, it made me go, God, what do I really believe? And like, it actually brought to the surface some doubts. It brought to the surface, do I really believe this? Do I really believe in the beginning God? Do I really believe God created everything? Like, and I, I was asking, and it brought to the surface of my life some doubts I've never really come to face to face with. And it made me ask some tough questions. And it's honestly such a big point in my, my Christian life, honestly, was that moment. And I'm sharing this because here in Mark 9, you have a father who's broken and desperate. His son is demon-possessed, often throws himself into the fire and water, trying to harm him, kill him. He's going to others seeking help, and he goes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, your disciples can't cast it out. I'm coming to you. What can you do, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, if you believe, all things are possible to him to believe. It's an amazing verse and thought, and we'll talk about that. And the father just says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I honestly believe he, he like, speaks for all of us. Like, this is kind of the cry of all of our hearts. If we're to be honest with ourselves— I think we just have the same answer many times as Jesus. I believe, but help the areas of my life where I don't believe. Like, there are still some doubts. And I am so thankful Jesus does not cast out the doubter. I'm so thankful. He's like, wait, you're doubting me? How dare you, right? We see Jesus just talk to him and embrace him, and there are some doubts. And listen, we should have some questions. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe Jesus is who he said he is? Why do you believe this, wor- this book is inspired by God? Why do you believe that the resurrection really took place? Do you have answers for that? Can you explain that? Can you articulate that? Can it make sense to someone who doesn't know anything about God or Christ? Can you say it in a way where people go, okay, I understand what you believe. See, there, there should be some things that are kind of raised up within all of us. We go, I, don't, I need to know this. 
I need to know what I really, what I really believe and why I really believe it, if there's reasons to this. And this challenges all of us. And let me just say this, doubt is not bad. We can't view doubt as Christians as like the enemy of faith. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. In many ways, actually, doubt complements faith. Doubt sometimes stirs within us a desire for faith. See, I think we can fear it. There's this book, and I've read it a few years ago, and I'm, I probably quoted it to you a million different times, different ways. You never know it's this book, but I'm going to recommend it right now. I don't do this, but I'm going to recommend this book. There's a book called The Reason for God, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. I read it like seven or eight years ago, and, and it was honestly like a life-changing book that I still go back to and had to read several times. And in his introduction, he talks about doubt. And here's what he says. I'll just put the quote up for you. He says, a faith, listen to this, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. He's basically saying we should embrace doubt. It's almost like an antibody. It's like our immune system. When, when you have doubts and they come in, you now, okay, your, your body's going to struggle with it, wrestle with it, and now, now know how to overcome it in a sense. Like we should embrace doubts. We shouldn't fear doubts. We shouldn't be like, the doubts are bad. Doubts are the enemy of Christianity. No, like if someone comes to me and they're honestly a doubter, like a, not a cynic, not to ask questions for the sake of not wanting answers, but a real doubter, like I really want to know. I'm really curious about this. I'm so thankful Jesus does embrace the doubters. You know, a guy named Ravi Zacharias said it this way. He says, what I believe in my heart must make sense in my mind. And I so agree with that. What I believe in my heart must make sense in my mind. We must be able to communicate it and explain it in a way where, again, the common person can go, okay, maybe I don't agree with it, but I understand where you're coming from, or I, I see it now in a new light. And this is something we should pursue in all of us. Because faith is not blind. Faith is not dumb or naive. Faith is not just this blind leap of, of faith. As people like, it's just this blind leap. I love how Hebrews 11 describes it. You guys know the verse. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith has substance to it and has evidence to it. There's evidence for faith. There's evidence for the things we believe. And we must take those things in consideration. But here's what I want to like pull out today. How much faith is enough faith? Have you ever thought about like, when it comes to God and faith and trust in God, like, do I need a 10 of faith for God to move and act? Like, is it too fine? You know, on the faith-o-meter with God, like, when is it like, oh, just, oh, you fell short. Almost had enough faith. Like, how does it work with, with God and faith? Like, when do we realize this is now enough or this is not enough? And it, does it really work like that? Is it really about enough or not enough? Is it really about a number or percentage of faith? How, like, how does this work? And again, I want to suggest to you and show this that simultaneously a Christian can have faith and doubt at the same time. And that's so encouraging to me. Then the same breath you can say, I believe, help my unbelief. And what a vulnerable and honest cry and prayer. And so I hope, I hope, I hope everyone in this room has asked the hard questions. Whether people have asked you or you've asked yourself the hard questions, why do I believe this? Is there evidence for this? Why doesn't God show up when I thought he wouldn't? God wants faith. He requires faith of me, but how much faith is enough faith? And let's come to our passage today. All right, so we're going to look at this and break it down into kind of three categories as we talk through this text a little bit. We're going to see, number one, three aspects of faith. Number one, the need for faith. The need for faith. Number two, the tension of faith. And number three, the expression of faith. All right? So as we walk through this text, we're going to see the need for faith, the tension of faith, 
and the expression of faith. So let's reread this. Number one, the need for faith. Look at verse 14, if you would, with me. Verse 14, it says, And when Jesus came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw Jesus, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him, and Jesus asked the scribes, what are you discussing with my disciples? What are you you talking about with them? All right, I love how Mark sets the scene here, and I want to do the same. Jesus was just on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? I think about where Jesus just was. Peter, James, and John are there. Moses and Elijah appear. He, he's just he's shining, like the word we talked about last week is metamorphose. Like there's almost this inside comes out of who Jesus, they really see Jesus for who he is. God the Father speaks. They hear God the Father's voice from heaven. And in crazy, incredible high, like when we say mountaintop experience, this is what we're referring to. This is a mountaintop experience. And they come back down to a crowd fighting a boy who's demon-possessed and a dad who's brokenhearted. All right. So they leave this glorious moment and, and come back down to the valley. And, and here's what I want to say. The honeymoon's over, right? Like vacation is over. Ever been there where you have like this glorious moment and then you come back to reality and you're like, I'd like another place better. This is where they're at. This, they're back in reality now. And, and they're in this place where they just had this crazy, incredible moment with God. And now they're back in the valley. And I have to, I have to like talk about this. Because so often it's when we're in the valley where we go back into reality and we go back into real life scenarios, we have to remind ourselves what we heard on the mountain. We have to remind ourselves what God showed us in the mountain. We have to on it. We are not going to go from mountain peak to mountain peak. We're also going to enter into some valleys in life. And I love that we have this example in the Bible of a mountaintop experience and then right into tragedy, right into difficulty. And you can imagine the disciples almost like, you almost forget right away the, the good things that just happened, the crazy thing that just happened, seeing Jesus transfigured. And please listen, church, because we will have mountaintop experiences and we'll also have valley experiences and we need to remind ourselves of what God showed us and spoke to us when we're in the valleys. Do not forget about the mountaintop when you're in the valley. Do not forget what God showed us when you're in the valley. And so they're in the valley and there's this interesting comparison between the mountaintop and the valley. We'll just throw up a couple of those, you know, differences for you here. So the difference between the mountain and the valley, really quick, we'll just read through these. Uh, the kingdom of God was on display on the mountain, but in the valley, the kingdom of Satan is on display. On the mountain, a sun is radiantly glorified. In a valley, a sun is terribly demonized. On the mountain, a father is honored in his son. In the valley, a father is horrified by his son. On the mountain, we see a lesson about the future. In the valley, we see a lesson about faith. On the mountain, we see a display of divine power. In the valley, we see a directive for human prayer. There's almost this comparison that Mark is showing us, and he does this a lot. Like they're just leaving this incredible moment, entering into the valley. And again, I want to set the stage because there's three groups of people there. You have the crowd, you have the Pharisees, you have the disciples. And just think about really quick the crowd. You have the crowd, they're there, they just want, they like being around Jesus. Jesus does things for them. Jesus feeds them. Jesus heals them, helps them. So in a sense, they're just kind of a consumer. They're there, they like being around him. You have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like the moralists. They're the religious the person, they're always critiquing Jesus. Oh, I could have done a better message this time. Like, they're always there criticizing. They're never really there to receive. They're there more critical, in a critical spirit. And then there's the followers of Jesus. They're just, they're just they're, I'm going to follow you whether it's good or bad. I'm just going to follow you. And I really think that all of us kind of fall into this category. A lot of times we can be like the crowd. We're just around Jesus, around the spiritual things. I like Jesus. I'm okay with Jesus. Jesus does pretty good things, so I'm, I'm pretty good with Jesus. And it's more of an interest it's maybe something we come because we want to get something out of it. Maybe there's more of a pharisaical heart where you just go, I just, I just like being around, again, religion. I just want to challenge Jesus, challenge Christians, challenge Christ followers, and there's like the religious, moralist spirit. And then there's those who are just saying, I just want to follow him. 
I'm just gonna, and I think Mark is trying to draw our attention to being those followers of Jesus. How do we follow him? How do we be like the disciples? So Jesus comes down the mountain, he sees the scribes, he sees the crowd, he sees the disciples, and here's what he says. He goes, what are you guys talking about? Look at verse 17. Verse 17, they say, then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. I want you to to feel um, the father's intensity and and heart at this moment. It seems like for a period of time, most likely years, he's been trying to help his son come to his son's aid. He's deaf and mute, so he can't hear, he can't speak. I, I want you to think about how this means there's no human connection, no human communication happening. I want you to think about when he falls into an epileptic seizure of what it seems like, but spiritually falls into a seizure-like state, and his father's grabbing him and saying, son, I love you. I'm here with you. You're not alone, but he can't hear that. He just sees his dad grabbing him and feel, he, he's missing out on that human connection. He's not hearing him. He can't speak back to his dad and say, dad, this really hurts. Dad, I need help. He's deaf and he's mute. And so the father's just broken by this. And he goes, I came to you. And I want you to notice, he's like, I came to you, but I got your disciples, right? <laughs> Maybe you feel that way. Like, I came to Jesus, but I got something else. And he's like, I came to you, I got your disciples, and they could do nothing. They couldn't help. Ever been there? Ever been to the place where you want to help, you see brokenness, you see need, and you want to move, you want to help, but you cannot? You're like, what can I do? Ever felt helpless like this? Ever come to the point where you go, I know I need to do something, I know I need to help, but you feel this complete helplessness? I've been here so often, I'm here probably more than I want to be. I think the disciples' minds, you guys, they were probably also, they probably had great faith, by the way. Let's think about this. In Mark chapter 6, they were just going around casting out demons, and they came back to Jesus. Jesus, look, we have power of the demonic realm. So I lo- when the Father brings this demonic son to, to the disciples, they're probably going, oh, well, we're demon caster outers, we can help you, right? Like, they probably had this confidence, but they couldn't do it this time. At one point in time, not long ago, they, they were able to do this. Now they can't do this. It says they could not. They could not. And I'm sure there's a sense of helplessness for the disciples. I was once able to help. Now I'm not. I've been very often helpless in ministry many times. I remember like nine years ago, uh, I was working at a church as like an intern pastor here at Calvary, not far away. And we had, we were given, everyone was given this, in, like you were given a cell phone over the weekend. And the, the cell phone is your cell phone, but basically it's an emergency cell phone. So over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if someone called and there's an emergency, you're the pastor on call. And I remember I'm like 21 years old. I have the emergency cell phone. They sit you down and they're like, listen, do not miss a phone call. You cannot, this is like nine years ago, and it's like, do not miss a phone call. This is very important. If someone calls, no matter what day, it's 3 a.m., you pick it up. You're in the shower, you pick it up. You got it. You got to answer this. This is the emergency cell phone. They're counting on you. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I remember I had this phone. I was just so paranoid. It's like Friday, Saturday. I'm, I'm literally, of course, I'm in the shower when I get my first phone call. And like I jump in the shower, like fall down, get it. I'm like, oh, like out of breath. This parents, these parents call and they go, hey, we'd like for you to do a hospital visit. Our daughter right now is in the hospital. I think it was North Broward. She's like, our daughter's in the hospital right now. Um, she's just, you know, addicted to drugs, now call and she's harming herself. And she, right now she's in the hospital. She just needs help. She needs prayer. Can you please just come and pray? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll come and pray. So I get changed, I get ready, and I drive to the hospital. Again, I think it's North Broward. I pull in, and at the time, I remember so clearly, uh, this side of the hospital, like the wing of the hospital is closed down. And I'm not sure why. It's almost like there's construction happening. They're like rebuilding the wing of the hospital. But there's like great parking. So I'm like, oh, no one's here. So I, I get out, and I'm walking now towards the hospital. I have no idea where I'm going, other than looking for like the, the hospitality desk and asking where this room number is. So I get out, and as I'm walking on this side of the hospital, I see this woman alone smoking, wearing her hospital gown. And she's, there's no one around. And so, and I don't know where I'm going. So I'm walking out and, and I see her and I go, 
I just have this feeling, I'm like, oh no, it's her. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, are you so-and-so? I'm actually here to meet with you. She goes, actually, yeah, I am so-and-so. I'm like, oh, okay, you're in your hospital gown. What happened? She's like, well, I, I, need, to, I need a smoke break. I need to get out of there. And my, my parents and the doctors, and they didn't know I left. I just had to leave. I had to get out of there. And she's like, you know, just kind of like fidgety. I'm like, okay. And I was thinking to myself, can I grab a doctor, nurse, tell us what no one's around? So I'm, I'm like, hey, let's just talk for a second. So we're outside. She's in her hospital gown. She's sitting down on the bench. I'm sitting down. I'm like, so what's going on? Your parents called me. I'm here to pray with you. Again, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm here to pray with you and talk with you. And as we're talking and she's opening up and she's talking to me and sharing kind of why she's there and her story, she begins to have a seizure. And she literally is sitting on the bench and goes as stiff as a board. She, I mean, I was sitting next to her. She goes as stiff as a board, slid onto the ground, and she's foaming out of the mouth, and she's rigid. And I'm like, oh, help! And no, no one's around. And so I literally turn her over on her side, just because I saw stuff coming over. I turn her over on her side, and I'm like, I oh, just like, Jesus, give me, what do I do? Help me. And I literally just pull up my phone, and I call 911. And I call 911. They're like, what's your emergency? I'm like, oh, I just met this woman. She's having a seizure. They're like, where are you? I'm like, the, the hospital. <laughs> They're like, what? I'm like, I know. The, the swing is closed. It's, she's not supposed to be here. I don't know. They're like, okay, we'll send you an ambulance. It's there in like 30 seconds, right? It shows up. They're like, why did you call 911? I'm like, no one's around. What am I supposed to do? And she, they're like, thank you so much. And I, I talk with her and I, I meet the parents and I speak with them and talk to them. And I've never felt so helpless in my entire life. Like, I come here to pray with her. And as I'm pr- like praying, she's literally having a seizure. I'm like, okay, I failed, right? And you come to that place of just you're helpless and you go, something Jesus wants to do, I, 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 I want to do, but I can't. And like, they wanted to help. They wanted to meet this, this father's need, the son's need, and they could not do it. And there's a sense of helplessness. And there's actually something incredibly freeing about this. You know, in John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. There's a side of this we have to realize that we are helpless. I love that Jesus comes down the mountain. He's like that big brother there to save the disciple. Like, he's just there. A lot of times there's things only Jesus can do, right? If we could just take this away for life, for ministry, things that we want to do, things we want to help with, we just can't. And there are some things the disciples cannot do, but Jesus can do. And this is one of those things at this moment. And so we see this, this great need for faith. So Jesus sees this, hears this. Verse 19, we'll keep reading. So he hears everything that's happening. They could not heal him. Verse 19, Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, who is Jesus speaking to? Is he saying, O faithless disciples, O faithless father, O faithless crowd, O faithless Pharisees? I honestly think it's like all of the above. He's saying, O faithless generation. He goes, how long shall I bear with you? And, and there is a sense of frustration there. And, he, and here's what I want to point out. Because faith is not just intellectual agreement on something. Faith is not just saying, I, believe, I agree with this, and therefore I have faith. Faith is more than that. One way to put it, and I, you can put it up here for you so you can see it, but I think faith is belief plus trust that leads to action. Faith is belief plus the sense of trust that will lead to action. And we see that what they're lacking is, is real trust. Like, I really trust you, Jesus. Like, I really trust you in this moment. It's not just I know God can heal. I know God is able to. But what he's looking for, Jesus is basically saying, where's this trust? Where's this generation of faith that has this trust? Not just I know, but has trust. And I, and I really think that we need to personalize this. Do you trust Jesus? Do I trust Jesus? Do I really trust him? You know, where's there areas in my life where I'm not trusting Jesus? Where's there areas in life you're not trusting Jesus? We say, Jesus, I trust you, but I'm not going to give you what? Jesus, I trust you, but I'm not going to give you this relationship. I trust you, but I don't trust your timing. I trust you, but I'm not going to give you my money. I trust you, but I'm not going to give you my life. I trust you, but I don't, tr- I don't trust you. Jesus is basically saying, don't just agree, but where is that faith, that trust that leads to action? 
that leads to some sort of action. And, and when he says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? I honestly think he's, it's more of a concern. Like, I'm going to the cross. My time is limited. I'm not going to be here for very long. When are you going to start trusting? When are you going to start believing? You're not going to physically have me around anymore. You've got to start trusting now because there will be a day I won't be here. And I'll give you my spirit, yes, but you won't be able to see me and feel me. That, that tangibleness that you have is like, trust me now. If you can't trust now, why won't you trust later? He's looking for this trust in them. And in verse 20, we'll keep reading. It says, they brought him to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What a great prayer. Those two things. Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion and help. Compassion and help. What he's saying is, do you care and are you able? Do you care? Do you have compassion? Please have compassion. And are you able? Can you help? And again, this really is so many of our thoughts with God. Does God care? And if he does care, is he able? Or if he's able, does he even care? And this is like the Father's, I want to know if you're compassionate and I want to know if you're able. I want to know if you care about what's happening with me and I want to know if you're able. And that's really kind of his cry. Are you compassionate and can you help us? And here's what's interesting to me. This boy has a seizure. He's going into an episode right when he comes to Jesus. He's literally foaming at the mouth. Like it's happening. It's happening in front of Jesus. And Jesus goes, so uh, so how long is this happening for? Like Jesus decides to make conversation with, and I try to imagine, do you ever think about like when I read this, I'm like, what is going on? Like, if you're the crowd and this guy goes into a seizure and you know Jesus can do things and will do, it's like, Jesus, just, just fix him. Like, why are you talking? Why are you making conversation? Like, just act. And I love that Jesus doesn't necessarily do it according to our time or how we think. And, and here's what I, I want us to see. Jesus does not look at this father and his son as like a problem to fix, but as, as people to know. This is a question. He's like, how long has this been happening? Tell me your, what he's saying is, tell me your story. Tell me what's going on. I'm so thankful that Jesus isn't like, let me just fix you, but he's like, let me know you. Aren't you thankful that Jesus doesn't just want to fix us? He actually wants to know us in the process. And he ends up fixing this guy, yes, but he's like, I just want to, he's like, tell me your story. How long has this been happening? And we see this almost temporary postponement, and the father answers. His son's having a seizure on the ground. He's like, well, you know, this has been happening from childhood, and, you know, it actually seems to be trying to destroy him. And he's having this conversation with Jesus while his son's having this. And we see this temporary, like, it's temporarily delayed. Like, he's not healed right away. It didn't happen probably according to the the father's desire or timing. I think Jesus is putting his finger on what the father loves most, and he's like, let's just talk for a little bit. And the father has to watch another episode, and he's like, okay. And I think he's trying to draw something out of the dad. Conversate with me. Know me. Tell me. Open up to me. I want to do more than just be a problem fixer. I want to know you. Again, I'm thankful Jesus doesn't just want to fix. He wants to know. He wants to spend time with. He wants to hear. But we also see that Jesus goes, I'm not going to heal the way you think I'm going to heal. So often in the Gospels, this is what we see. Jesus doesn't always do things the way we want and when we want. It's done in Jesus' timing. He's like, well, I'm going to do it when I want. You know, and you see Jesus t- talking with him. And I'll say this. While we're waiting, God is working. And that is what's happening here. While he's waiting for Jesus to do something, Jesus is really at work. And he doesn't really see it or sense it at first. And I really want us to get this. I want to get this. God, while I'm waiting, f- please let me remember that you're working. Let me not forget that while I'm waiting, you're at work. And, and God, God's at work. And the father says something that kind of is interesting, and I wonder if it's almost a shot at Jesus, and Jesus picks up on it. This is so interesting. What does he say in verse 22? He says, if you can do anything. Do you hear that? If you can. And it's funny when you actually read this. Look at Jesus' response in verse 23. What does Jesus say? And this is number two. We're going to see the tension of faith, the tension of faith. Number two, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Did you catch that? The father's like, if you can 
I don't know if you can. If you can't do anything, cast us out. And Jesus goes, well, if you can believe. And the way it's even worded, some translate it this way, if I can, if I can do anything, no, no, it's not on me, it's on you, if you can believe. And I want us to catch that. If you can do anything, Jesus, Jesus like, it's not about whether or not I can do something, can you do something? It's not about whether or not can I heal, it's can you believe? The issue's not with Jesus. Jesus is trying to point that out. If I can, if you can. If you can believe, and I, I, need, I needed to read that and hear that. So I'm like, Jesus, if you can do this, he's like, if you can just believe. <laughs> and he says, if you can believe, what does he say? All things are possible to him who believes. Now let's just, for a second, can we just do this? Because I know that I'm cynical, and we're all cynical, and we, we, we hear verses like that, we're like, <laughs> sure, all things. But can we just enjoy this for a second before we tear it down? <laughs> can we just enjoy this, this verse and this thought for a second from Jesus? He goes, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. I had to read that and go, do I believe all things are possible to him who believes? Like I had to ask myself, do I believe this belief statement? This was a big statement to me. I've seen people abuse this verse. Maybe you have too. If you can believe all things are possible, who believes? You're, like, uh, you're talking about like in a basketball and a hoop. What are you talking like, No, like, like what does this mean? What does this look like? And let's just, let's just enjoy this for one minute. Hebrews 11.6 says what? But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You and I cannot please God without faith. And you might hear that and go, no, 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 I, I know there there's, must be a verse against it. Like, no, without faith, it's impossible. It's impossible to please him. Without faith, it's impossible, he says. You must believe that he is. You must come to God and say, God, I know that you're God and I'm not. And I know that you're a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. See, the point is all of us exercise or put our faith in something, obviously. And that the, for the, us, the question is, where is the direction of our faith? See, the issue is not the depth of this man's faith. It's the direction of his faith. It's, it's more of not the potency, how, how much faith does he have? It's the person his faith is directed at. And we see, that, we see this. A little faith with a great Savior can do amazing things. It's a little, even a faith that's not perfect, faith that may be impure in some ways, can still go a long way when it's in the right person, the right object. And this is what we see. Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And here's, I want to ask a question. Because um, first of all, the Bible makes it clear. God gives all of us a, some measure of faith, some measure of faith. What is the purpose of faith? Like, why, why do we have faith? What's the purpose of faith? Is the purpose of faith for me to get what I want? Is the, does God give me faith? So that I can say, I have faith, I want this, give me this. Is faith for me? No. Faith isn't for me. Faith, God gives us faith so that we can be people who are ushering in his kingdom and saying, God, I do want to have faith. I want to put my faith in you that your, your kingdom's going to come on earth as it is in heaven. I want to have faith again that God wants to advance his kingdom that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Like, I want to have faith again in the purpose of faith. The purpose of faith is to bring heaven down. The purpose of faith is for Jesus to come, for Jesus to rule and reign. Can I just say this? I want to have faith again that, honestly, God wants to save people more than we do. God wants to reach lost people more than we do. God wants to make sure every child has a home more than we do. And I really believe that this verse should be used in light of how can I have faith towards kingdom things? How can I have faith towards your kingdom come, your will be done? And believing God that you want your will to be done more than I want your will to be done. And I think that this is the context in, in which it's written. Because we can take this and, and use this. Like, how many times have you seen this, right? Like, we'll see, like, Philippians 4.13. I used to say Philippians 4.13 before every free throw I'd shoot. Every free throw. I'd be like, jumping, like, I can do all things. And I'd miss. I'm like, maybe I can't do all things. I remember, like, just always saying that verse. Are you going to a weight room? Like, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. Like, guys trying to bench 500 pounds. Oh, I can do all things. And you're like, try 1,000 then, right? Like, we, we use it 
and, and use these verses sometimes and abuse them in, in some ways rather than like enjoying them in the context that they're written in. Because Philippians 4.13 is a beautiful verse when you understand the context it's written in. It's an incredible verse on contentment. And some of you think you can't be content. Some of you think you can't be content with your singleness. Some of you think you can't be content in your marriage and you can do all things. You can be content in the, like when you understand a verse in its context, it's even better. And I think this is a verse we'll use like, whatever you believe, all things are possible. Who believes? And like, why can't I dunk then? Why can't I do this? And it, let's use it in that context. Jesus wants his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And guys, I really do, I want to get back to this. Let's, let's actually embrace this again. I would love, I would love for us to be a church that has great faith. I would love for us to believe that God does want to do more things than I want. Like God wants to save people more than I want. I want to believe that we serve a God who's incredibly patient and long-suffering, and he wants to redeem and save that which is lost. I want to believe again that God wants to save some people in this room who aren't saved yet. I want to believe again that God wants to save my next-door neighbor or the people here in South, like the people we'd say there's no way they'd ever follow Jesus. I want to believe that all things are possible. I want to believe that all things are possible to him who believes and believes what? Believes in the kingdom, believes in the fact that faith is the, the currency of the kingdom. Let me say this, faith is not some blank check. Like if you just have faith, go do whatever you want, your faith. And it's not some blank check, but faith is a reminder that the price has been paid for. It's not a blank check, but it reminds us that the price of sin and hell and redemption has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to believe that Jesus wants to apply that blood to as many people as possible. That God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I want to believe that so strongly again. And so Jesus says, if you can believe all things are possible, like, can you believe the kingdom of God coming to earth? Can you believe this? And what does the man say in verse 24? He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And with this, I believe he echoes the heart of everyone in this room. And, and I want us to see, this is a great model prayer. You see the, the passion, you see the vulnerability, you see the humility, the honesty. I'm so thankful for the honesty of this prayer. He's like, I believe it helped my unbelief. Do you see this? Let me point this out. He doesn't minimize faith and the struggles of faith. He doesn't minimize because it's difficult to exercise faith. He doesn't minimize how difficult it is to exercise faith, but he also doesn't minimize the excellence of Christ. He's like, I believe, I believe. I'm not going to minimize that, but I also have unbelief. And we just see this wonderful, true response, I think, that is the heart of all of us. How many of you felt like this man where you go, I so believe, but I also don't believe? He's like, yes, Jesus, I believe, but the areas that I don't believe in, can you please help me in? That's where I need help. And Jesus' response to him blows me away because we're going to see that Jesus does heal the son. Jesus doesn't go, how dare you not fully believe? I'm right in front of you. You need to go away. Your faith's a two. Don't come back to me until your faith's a 10. When it's a 10, then you can come back to me. But until then, don't even talk to me. Jesus does not do that, right? He directs faith towards Jesus. He goes, Jesus, I believe, but there's parts of me that still don't believe. Let me point it this way. I, I think this, maybe all illustrations fall short in some ways. But imagine this, all right? I don't know if you've ever had a dream you're falling. Or let's just say you're on a hike and you're going somewhere and you, you lose your footing. You're sliding down a mountain. There's a cliff below. You're going to fall off to your death. Like guaranteed, you're going to fall to your death. And you see this little branch there. And this little branch doesn't look like it can support your weight. You're like, there's no way. Uh, not me. I don't want to say my weight. And there's no way it can support that much weight. And you look at it and you go, there's a 10% chance this branch can hold my weight. But you reach out and grab the branch. And you realize the branch is holding my weight. Now, are you only 10% saved? No. It held your weight. Even if you weren't fully confident. There's like, oh, there's 10% chance. But we see the whole point is this. It's the branch. The point is, it's not about the quality or quantity of our faith. It's about the object of our faith. It's about the person. Our faith does not have to be perfect if we have a perfect Savior. You will have imperfect faith. One way to say it, I love how one person said it. He says, it's not a, he says, you can have imperfect faith if you have a perfect Savior. And I think this is so true. 
you can have in perfect faith if you have a perfect Savior. You might reach out and go, ah, there's still doubts, there's still fears. But again, you still reached out. It's funny, I've talked to people, I'm like, I don't have faith. I pray and I talk to God and I cry out and I don't have faith. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're praying and crying out to God. You're seeking God, you're asking him. You're, you're showing faith in him. It might not be perfect, but it's like you're, you're exercising faith. You're looking at him and crying out to him. What do you mean? You see, again, we can see that at the same time, you can have faith and doubt. And I'm so encouraged by this. I'm so encouraged that at the same breath, I can say, Jesus, I believe there's still areas and it's still hard, it's still difficult, and Jesus doesn't go, I'm not going to heal your son until you fully believe. Jesus, receive what this guy says. And I, again, church, please hear this, because we can be our worst critics. We can be the ones who walk away and say, God, could ne- I don't have enough faith. I, God can never accept me. God can never do this. And I honestly believe just direct your faith towards him, whatever that is. What does Jesus say in Matthew 17, 20? He goes, with the faith the size of mustard seed, you can remove mountains. And that's in the same story of this. <laughs> Matthew adds it in. With the faith as small as mustard seed, you can move mountains. God is not looking for this great quality. He's just looking for it directed at him. And we see this tension of faith. And please hear that there is going to always be that tension of faith. And not something we like or, or we, we love, but we actually can embrace this. And if you are a doubter, if you are a skeptic, if you go, I believe, but there's still areas where I don't believe, I love how this is for the church. I love how this is for believers. This, uh, this still applies to us. And so Jesus then, let's keep reading, verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead. So that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When it comes to the tension of faith, let me say this, and please hear this. Sometimes it appears to get worse before it gets better. It appears to get worse before it gets better. Jesus casts out this demon. He convulses, falls down, and the language is weird. It, it, it seems that he actually did die, but it's hard when you read that here. It doesn't feel that way, but it's using resurrection language that Jesus took him by the hand and he arose. But here's, here's the idea. It convulses. He, he's on the ground. He appears to be dead, and they go, Jesus, we trusted you. We came to you to cast out this demon, and now he's dead. And, and I've, I feel like I've thought that. Jesus, I trusted you, but I gave this to you. Now it's worse. And then Jesus just calmly grabs him by the hand and lifts him up. And, and sometimes, I think, for all of us, we can have that mindset of like, Jesus, I trusted you. I gave this to you. Why does it seem to be worse? than I brought this to you and it's better before. At least he was alive. Now he's dead. And Jesus just calmly brings him up. And sometimes it appears to get worse before it gets better. And still in those moments, I still think of that moment, this is Jesus just walking over. This, this dad's faith, my son's dead. He's dead. Everyone's yelling in the crowd, he's dead. When you hear the crowd yell, he's dead. I'm sure it does something to your heart. Like, he's dead. Jesus just goes, let's get up. And he grabs him by the hand and he arises. And again, this is resurrection language. This word arose is the same word used speaking of Jesus' resurrection, that he arose. Same word, same idea, that Jesus has resurrection power in him. That Jesus goes, I can make dead things alive. I can make this boy who appears to be dead or is dead, I can make him alive. And we cannot forget that our Jesus has resurrection power. We cannot forget that our Jesus likes to make dead things alive again, and that's what he's doing. He's like, let me just show you how great my power is. I'm not just going to cast out the dead. He's going to seem to be dead. I'm going to bring him back to life. And I love the power and authority of Jesus. And we see this tension of faith. It stretches us more than we want to be stretched. It takes us further than we want to be taken. The father, the father probably had that moment of he's dead and it's over. And then he sees Jesus take him up. Again, this tension of faith is constant. It's constant. But now we see this expression of faith and this faith language. Look at verse 28 and 29. We'll close with this. Verse 28. When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, uh, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And I wonder, 
how the disciples did this or when they did this. You know, you, you think about, like, how long did it take for them to go into the house, like, making dinner? And like, so, uh, Jesus, um, can you, uh, do you know why we couldn't do this? Like, do you know why we couldn't cast out the, we, we could before. And then Jesus gives his answer, this kind does not come out by prayer and fasting. And, and here's what we see. The disciples once thought they had, like, this ownership of casting out demons from Mark 6. Like, they thought they could. They thought they had the power and the authority. And Jesus is like, no, no, it's not so much that you own this as much as it's connected to a deep communication and relationship with me. Like, it's connected to prayer. So power and authority comes from the source who has all power and authority. See, me and myself do not have the power and authority to do, to do these things. I need to be connected to the one who has the power and authority. Jesus basically saying it's about deep relationship. Be in prayer. Don't assume because you've done it before, you can do it again. Don't assume because maybe you seem to have the power before, you'll have it today. And he's showing that really this power and authority and this, and this weight comes from deep intimacy and relationship and communion with God. And what a reminder it is for us that, no, listen, we cannot say, well, we prayed once then for God to work. Like, this constant, ongoing prayer and yearning and crying out to God. A guy named Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He says, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. I, I know no better way to measure where you're at spiritually than the intensity of your prayer? Are you a people of prayer? Are you going back to the source who has all power and authority? And listen, church, please, because I want God to do something new. I want God to do a work. I want God to do something in my family and in our community in this church in South Florida. And it's not going to happen without prayer and fasting. It's just not. As we were praying a couple years ago, as we pray still to this day, this is like constantly in the forefront of my mind, like, God, for there to be anything that happens. It's not going to happen without prayer and fasting. And it can't be, look what we did years ago, or look what I did months ago. It has to be this ongoing thing. And it's crazy, because Jesus, we don't even see him praying in this passage. We're like, where is this coming from? Jesus said, it's coming out of intimacy with the Father, which you've been lacking. It's coming out of prayer and fasting. And we just see the heart of this. And and here's, again, I just want to end with this thought before we pray and close, because if you read this story, and please listen to this. If you read Mark chapter 9, verse 1 through 29, what we just read, this is so interesting to me. Jesus is on the mountain in glory, but he leaves the mountain and he enters into this mess. And I want to I explain something. Back in this day and still today, when people share the gospel of Jesus, they're not going to be able to read the whole gospel of Mark or Matthew or Luke. Or they're going to share stories, right? This would be a story that the disciples would use to really share the whole gospel. This is a great story of, honestly, the entire gospel, if you think about this. Uh, actually, it's interesting. A guy named Raphael painted a picture of the transfiguration, not the Ninja Turtle Raphael, um, even though cause that's what I thought, too. But there's a guy named Raphael who painted a picture of the transfiguration. Well, the photo's not the best, but he painted this, and you see Jesus in glory and just darkness below. And here's what the story tells us. Jesus did not stay on the mountain. He entered into the mess. And this story of Jesus taking on the Father's brokenness, the Father's pain, this demonic spiritual thing that's happening, we see that Jesus enters into that. And here's what we see with the gospel. The gospel is this. Jesus left heaven and left glory, and he came to earth, and he put on a body, he put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we were able to be with him and talk with him and know him, and Jesus entered our mess, and he took on our mess. And this story of Mark 9, verse 1 through 20, as people would tell this story, just as they're telling it word of mouth, not everyone could read, not everyone could own a copy of this, but as you're telling the story of Jesus was transfigured, but then he comes down and is met with a demon, he casts it out and brought healing and restoration. This is just a piece of the gospel. That Jesus left it all, left heaven and came to earth, and he brought healing and restoration. And this for them was a picture of the gospel. It's for them to see and hear like, wow, my God leaves glory and enters into my mess? Yes. 
My God can relate to me in the mess? Yes. My God takes on the mess? Yes. And this is what I love about the gospel of Mark. This is what I love about the gospel in general. God left his glory to be among us, and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. He left the glory so we could look on and say, wow, I serve a God who's not in heaven saying, just try harder. I serve a God who entered into it and says, no, no, I will pay the price for you. I'll take on darkness for you. I don't think this painting is a fair painting at all. I think we need to see more of him walking into the mess and embracing that. That is what my God has done. That is what your God has done. Amen. I just want to spend some time now. We're just going to end with some worship. And actually, we just want to share a couple things at the end. So if you would stay with us as we kind of want to talk just a few, few things, uh, just what's been happening, what's going on. So let me just pray for us now. We're going to spend our, some, some time in worship. Father, again, we just, um, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, who entered into our mess. God, who entered into darkness. God, we just, um, we're humbled by this passage, Lord. I know that so often I believe, but I also doubt in the same breath. And Jesus, thank you for your patience. Thank you for embracing and loving doubters. Thank you, God, for this father who who is honest enough to say where he fell short. And at the same time, honest enough to say my faith's in you, I believe. Lord, we want to be people that believe. We, we want to be people that trust, that it leads to action. And so, Lord, I ask that you would just be here. God, we ask, um, there's families and there's lives in here. There's people who are in a lot of pain. Jesus, I ask that they would seek you in prayer and fasting. The pain in their family, the pain in their home, the anger, God, the bitterness, that Jesus, that you would get rid of that, remove that, that they would seek you through prayer and fasting. That Jesus, we would just seek you through prayer and fasting here for our church, for, for just South Florida. That God, you want to remove things that are not of you. And we just ask, God, that your kingdom would come. So we thank you again. Jesus, as we sing to you, as we praise you, we ask that you'd be here. God, this would be all about you in your wonderful name. Amen. Let's stand and close in worship.